1 Corinthians 15. We'll read that whole chapter, and that's in connection with the topic for this afternoon, which comes from Lord's Day 17, concerning the resurrection of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the most detailed exposition or explanation of the resurrection of Christ that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. So we'll read that whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet." The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who has put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all." Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. 
What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, and there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on these things, let's sing together. Next, I thought I preached the sermon already. The sermon which is yet to be preached is based on Lord's Day 17, which is in the Heidelberg Catechism, which you can find on page 531 of your books of praise. And this concerns the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There the question is, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death. 
so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our text in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is worthless. Think about that for a moment. Would you be willing to make that claim, to say that yourself, that either Christ was raised bodily from the dead around the year 33, somewhere around there, Either that happened, or all my faith is worthless. All my devotion to God, all the hundreds of times I've gone to church, every prayer that I've prayed, the tears I've poured out before God, all of that is worthless if Christ has not been raised from the dead. It's a very strong statement from the Apostle Paul. But Paul is ruthless about this. He doesn't take that back. Not only does he say that if Christ hasn't been raised, then our faith is worthless. But even more, he says, if we hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So not only is it worthless, it's even harmful. And why why does he say that? Because he says, then we would be the poor souls who hoped in Christ in vain, who made so many sacrifices in vain, and none of it to any purpose at all. Better to not hope at all than to make so many sacrifices in vain, to hope so earnestly for nothing. That's what's at stake in the truthfulness of the testimony of the Gospels uh, and the Apostles. That's not to say the evidence of the resurrection is weak. There are serious and compelling lines of evidences in the Gospels and outside the Gospels that support what they say about Jesus, that he actually rose from the dead. So the lines of evidence are strong, but the point that Paul is making is clear. The, The resurrection must be factual, historically true, factually true, or our faith is in vain. Now, we might find it surprising that Paul says all of that in connection specifically with the resurrection of Christ. We We might be willing to say that about Christ's death on the cross. If Christ did not die on the cross, then my faith is in vain. But Paul says this specifically about the resurrection. And so we need to understand why Jesus needed to rise for our faith to, to matter. He needed to be who he said he was, and he needed to rise as he said he would ra- rise, or none of our faith has any value. And perhaps you, you're wondering then, what is it about the resurrection that makes it so important that Paul would make a statement like that? What do we lose without the resurrection? After all, Christ did pay for our sins in his death on the cross. So our sins are paid for. Did Christ actually need to rise in order for our faith to have value? 
Well, these are some of the questions that the Catechism also addresses in Lord's Day 17. And so I summarize the message with this theme, Christ has been raised. It's coming right out of 1 Corinthians 15. Christ has been raised, and so our faith is not in vain. And we'll look first at what happened when Christ rose from the dead that, that makes it such a momentous event. And then we'll see also how that affects us already now and even more in the future in the life to come or on the day when Christ returns. So the question before us, the, the first question before us is, why did Christ need to rise from the dead for us to be saved? Since Christ died again, Hasn't the price been paid? And doesn't that mean that now we can all go free? That hell no longer stands over us. But that's not what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is still worthless and you're still in your sins. So in other words, Christ's death does not cover your sins if Christ has not been raised. Paul teaches it isn't enough just for Christ to have died in our place. As long as he remains dead, remains in the grave, we cannot go free. We're still, as he says, in our sins. Why? Why is it that Christ's resurrection makes all the difference? Well, part of the answer is that death cannot possibly hold the Son of God. We know this. God is greater than death. God created death. And so death cannot hold the Son of God. And so if Christ hadn't been raised, that would mean death is still holding him, which would mean he's not the Son of God, which would mean he's a fraud, he's a liar. And that would mean then his sacrifice obviously did nothing for our sins. That, that's part of the answer to the question why Christ had to rise. He rose to show that he was indeed the Son of God. He was who he claimed to be. But there's, there's more to it, and we can see this if we start asking the question from a different perspective. Instead of asking why Christ had to rise, we should ask, why did God the Father raise him? To put it in those terms. Notice that's how Paul phrases it in verse 15. Not Christ rising, but the Father raising him. So it was God the Father who raised God the Son from the dead. And if we ask the question from that perspective, we'll begin to uncover the answer to why this matters so much. So why did God the Father raise God the Son? Now all of that, it's not to say that Christ was entirely passive in the whole process. He still works together with his Father in all things. And there's other texts where Jesus does teach that he has the authority and the power to raise himself from the dead. But the majority of texts that speak about the resurrection do put it in these terms. God the Father raising God the Son, not Jesus rising of his own initiative. It's not that he didn't have the power, but that his resurrection was the Father's initiative. It was the Father's decision to raise him up. You can see that in verse 15. You can see it again in verse 20, and it's in a number of other New Testament texts as well. So if we're going to answer the question, why did Christ need to rise or else we'd be in our sins, we should ask the question from that perspective. Why did the Father need to raise him? Or why did the Father choose to raise him? If we know why God raised him, then we'll probably also see why it is necessary also for our salvation. 
Now, I don't think you find the answer clearly in, in 1 Corinthians 15. In this chapter, Paul assumes the answer. But if you search around the New Testament, Paul does elsewhere explain why God the Father raised Christ from the dead. Take a look with me at, at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks in our sermon series. But let's just look at Philippians 2 verse 8. Philippians 2, verse 8, and there Paul is encouraging this this young Christian congregation to follow Christ's example of laying down his life. And he says of Christ, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then notice verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So notice the connection there, because there Paul explains why God raised him. He says, Christ humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God raised him. In other words, God exalted Jesus, God raised him from the dead, because Christ humbled himself before God to death, even death on the cross. In other words, here's the answer to why God the Father raised him. Christ's resurrection was God's way of publicly honoring Christ's death and Christ's work as sufficient. Because Christ went all the way in obedience to the Father, God rewarded him and honored him by raising him from the dead. You can actually see the same thing in Isaiah 53, which we've looked at a number of times in the last few weeks. And you can turn there with me if you like, or you can just listen. But we're looking at at verse 10 in Isaiah 53. And verse 10 says, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And then he says, If he would render himself as a guilt offering... Then he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. So notice again, the same connection is being drawn. If he will render himself as a guilt offering, then the work of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Notice the connection there then. The, the, the work, the, the condition for being exalted or for seeing the work of God is him humbling himself to death or, as Isaiah puts it, rendering himself as a guilt offering. And, and the next verses in Isaiah 53 go, go and make the same point again. It says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see God's work and be satisfied. And and then it continues, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities, again, pointing to his death. And then again, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. So that text teaches the same principle. God honored Jesus. God the Father raised Jesus, exalted him as a way of honoring the work that he did. And saying, this work was sufficient. So let's go back to our our initial question then. Why does Paul say that if Jesus has not been raised, then we are still in our sins? We can see now the answer. Because if God had not honored Jesus' sacrifice by exalting him, he would have implicitly said, this work was not sufficient. This work was not enough. 
And that would mean his sacrifice is somehow deficient, cannot save us, and therefore, as Paul says, we are still in our sins. So why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? Because Christ's resurrection is God's public declaration to the world that Christ's sacrifice fully satisfied his justice and was totally sufficient to set his people free. If Christ hadn't been raised by the Father, then that would mean that God was not pleased with his sacrifice, and that would mean we still have to pay for our own sins. As Paul says, then we are still in our sins. Let me offer just one more way to look at it, working through the same principles. And this is one more way to answer this question, why? Why did Christ have to rise from the dead? This time I'm looking at Romans 4, verse 25. Again, you don't need to turn there, but you, if, if you like to, it's Romans 4, 25. And Paul says this, think, thinking through the same principles, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Think about that. He was delivered up, that's his suffering, that's his death, delivered up for our trespasses, our sins, raised for our justification. Another way to say it is this, Christ died for our sins, but... If Christ had remained there in the grave, that would mean Christ was still making payment. He was still paying for our sins. His death is still not yet enough. We still, in other words, would not be justified. If Christ is still in the grave and still enduring the wrath of God, then that means we need to wait until finally he's done before ever we can go see the Father. And if he's not been raised yet, most likely he wouldn't be raised ever. The payment is not yet complete. And so then until Christ finished making payment, God's justice cannot let any of us go free. Not until our sins are fully paid for. But Paul says, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. So in other words, when God raised Jesus from the dead, it could only mean one thing, and that is that God's justice had been totally satisfied. There were no more sins to pay for, no more punishment needed. The payment was complete. That's what the resurrection teaches us. I heard a missionary explain it once using an analogy of, of someone committing a crime. If you go to a foreign country and you commit a crime there and you're sent to jail, and let's say a, a friend of yours who lives there in that country says, I will go there with him. Or, or rather, I will go there in his place. I will take the punishment in his place. And let's say the authorities accept that, that substitute. You go back to, to Canada would you dare ever go back to that country? Well, if that friend of mine was still in jail, I probably would not dare ever to go back because who knows what the authorities might do. But if my friend finishes his sentence and is allowed to go free, then I know the punishment is fully paid for. There's nothing left to pay. And then I'm free to go back to that country without worry. The same principle is here with, with the resurrection of Christ. When God raised him, it was a testament that there were no more sins to pay for. We were fully covered. 
And so the catechism then also says, by his resurrection, he's overcome death so he can make us share in the righteousness that he obtained for us by his death. In other words, that righteousness is not ours until that payment is done. And the payment was done when Christ was raised. That was the proof that it was fully paid. So because he accomplished perfectly everything the Father demanded of him, he now is able to share what he's done with us, even though we never deserved any of it. So that's how we might answer the question, why did Christ have to be raised? It was a testament that his death was fully sufficient. But notice the Catechism has more to say as far as the benefits of Christ's resurrection. We've seen why Christ had to be raised, but that doesn't mean that there aren't further benefits already now that we can gain from his resurrection. Not only does his resurrection mean we get to share in his righteousness, meaning we're justified, our sins are paid for, but the Catechism says, building on Paul's teaching, that new life, already starts for us now. Because he has overcome death, because he's done everything the Father demanded of him, he's able now to already now begin to give us new life. We saw a little bit of that last week already when we considered what it meant when when Scripture says that we died with Christ and and were raised with Christ. And I said last week that the future breaks into the present Christ bought us with his death, and he brings new life already already now. And that means because we are now counted together with Christ, united with Christ, it's also language from, from last week, because we're united with Christ, God sends us his spirit as people that belong to Christ. The spirit can come from God to renew us because God sees us as tied to Christ. If we were on our own, apart from Christ, without being united to him, the Spirit could not come to us. We are polluted sinners still in rebellion. It's because we're tied to Christ, because God sees us as under him, that the Spirit also now can come to us and begin to renew us. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, verse 11. He says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, in other words, the Spirit of God, because God's the one who raised him from the dead, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. If you can follow that that line of logic then, if God sent his spirit and raised Jesus from the dead, and now his spirit is in you, then his spirit will certainly also raise you from the dead. And that too then is a consequence or a benefit of the resurrection. It's because Christ has risen that he's able to send us his spirit. The dead do not work. The dead do nothing, but Christ is working, and Christ is renewing us and preparing us for the day when we go into the presence of the Father together with him. While we're still on earth, the Holy Spirit then teaches us how to live in fellowship 
with the God from whom we were earlier estranged, how to wage war against our sins, how to put to death the sin that still exists within us. Those are things the Spirit teaches us, things we do not learn on our own without the Spirit. And the Spirit also makes us able to to enjoy and appreciate the fellowship and the love of God that that the love of God, the fellowship of God that is so precious to us as Christians and and wonderful to us, that's a gift of the Spirit that we know how to treasure God's love. We know how to be in relationship with God. Sinners in rebellion against God cannot love God and cannot enjoy the love of God. And so the Spirit comes and makes us able already now to begin that new life that will ultimately be perfect in eternity. And and that new life, this is our third point then, the new life that we experience in Christ already now is only the beginning. The love of God that we feel now is only a small beginning. The fellowship that we have with God here on earth, which for many of us is so deep and so meaningful, is still only the beginning. Because Christ rose from the dead, we can have confidence that the day will come when our bodies also will rise and we will go to be in the presence of God and in relationship with God to a degree that far surpasses anything that we understand today. You see, even now in heaven, not everything is perfect. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Not everything is perfect in heaven. It's perfect in the sense that it's free of sin. It's a blessed, glorious reality. We saw this also this morning, Paul says in Philippians uh, chapter 1, that to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says to depart and be with Christ is far better, but not everything yet is perfect. What isn't yet good is that we are still far, or we will be still far from our bodies. And that's the, the, the hope that the New Testament points us to is ultimately the resurrection also of our bodies. And so you find even in, in Revelation 6, some of the effects of, of, of the, the imperfection that exists even still in heaven. The saints cry out, from under the altar, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? It's a, per- it's a glorious, blessed reality, but it's still waiting for the perfect reality, which will come on the day when Christ returns and our bodies will be raised and justice will finally be established forever. And so not only then do they cry out for justice, but they long for the day when they'll be clothed again in their bodies. We were made to be in our bodies. We were made body and soul. We weren't made to be separated from our bodies. So when we die or or when we put a loved one in the grave, we do rejoice because they are in a far better place than here on earth. But we still bury that body in hope of a day that's still coming, a day when that body will be raised. The immediate, the immediate reward as we go to be with heaven is not the ultimate reward. We're not Buddhists who think that our souls need to escape from our bodies in order to enjoy perfection, as if this body is, is a prison that holds us down. No, God created us to be in our bodies, and our eternal home is not heaven. Our eternal home is the new earth the earth that God has made us to to live in. 
And so when we lay our loved ones down then in the dirt, it's true that they go to a, to a better place. Again, as Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But that is not our final hope. We aren't giving up those bodies forever. We aren't saying goodbye to them forever. We lay them down now because we know that Christ will raise them up again in glory, made perfect, free from sin, and glorious, glorious beyond our ability to fathom. You, you can see this, you should be able to see this in a Christian graveyard. In fact, if you, if you drive down Highway 6 to, to Guelph, you can see the, the Roman Catholic graveyard right there. And, and the sign in the front has a beautiful, true theological uh, statement. It says, in hope of the resurrection, if you remember that sign. And that's what Christian burial is all about. We put our bodies down in hope of the day when they will again rise. Think of how much the apostles suffered for that belief that our bodies would be raised again. It was so countercultural in their days, not only among the Greeks who thought it was ludicrous, but even among the, the elite educated Jews. The Pharisees believed in, in the resurrection, but the Sadducees, who were the high priests and the elites among the Jews, the Sadducees thought it was ridiculous. They they, they ridiculed the idea that our bodies would again be raised. And you can see already in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul even had to push back against fellow Christians who couldn't swallow the idea that our bodies would again be raised. They thought that's such a small hope. Who wants to hope in bodies when you can hope in more glorious things like spirits and, and, and heavenly concepts? That was where they were trying to put their hope, but Peter and, and excuse me, Paul says that his hope is in the resurrection, in the raising of our bodies, and that without that resurrection, our hope is meaningless. And that's why the Catechism then says Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge also of our glorious resurrection. So based on what Paul says in verse 20, that Christ is the, the first fruits of our glorious resurrection. The first fruits, as, as you can tell already now in, in, in the very early period of, of, of the harvest, or not the harvest, the early period of, of the summer, the first fruits, when you start to see fruits appearing on the plants, and especially when you harvest them the first time, the first fruits are the guarantee that the rest of the harvest is on its way. It's coming, and it's coming soon. Christ, Paul says, is the first fruits of the harvest of our bodies. Because he was raised, we know that the rest of the harvest is coming. Those who are counted in Christ will certainly also be raised. And just as Christ was raised in his body, so they too will be raised in their bodies. But, Paul does say, their bodies will not be the same as they are now. They will be glorious beyond imagination. You think about the, the metaphor that Paul uses in verse 37. He says, what you sow, what you plant in the ground, is not the body that you're hoping for, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. When farmers put the seeds in the ground, they're not hoping to pull seeds out of the ground by the end of the summer. They're hoping for a far more glorious, totally different body, and yet still the same being. God gives to each, as Paul says, a body he's chosen, to each kind of seed its body, and, 
and, and this, the final body is radically different from the initial seed that's planted in the dirt. Paul says the same is true of the human resurrection. In one sense, what will be raised out of the ground on the final day will be the same body that you put there now when we bury our loved ones. Just like a kernel of wheat is the same being as the final plant. And yet, in another sense, it's unimaginably better, far more glorious, beyond our ability to even imagine how much more glorious it is. Just as a full-grown plant is unimaginably better than the initial seed that was put in the ground. So this is the metaphor Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. The seed has no idea how glorious it will be when it's finally raised. So jumping to verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, he says, there is also a spiritual body. So the people of his time thought it was silly to, to place your hope in the resurrection of a body, they thought, what a small thing that is. Paul says, no, what a small thing your present body is. What a glorious thing the final body will be. That's what we're ultimately hoping for. A fully glorious body raised and raised to live forever in the presence of Christ. What we sow now then are bodies that are broken by sin, bodies full of deformities, bodies with missing limbs or eyes and ears that don't work, bodies that for mysterious reasons just don't function the way they should, bodies that are full of pain, bodies that are self-destructing, bodies that get old and tired and wrinkled. And we sow those bodies into the earth knowing that they will be raised gloriously and perfectly into a harvest that will be beyond comparison, that will leave all of us breathless. And surely those who've suffered the worst bodily ailments now on this side of eternity eternity will be also those who leap the highest for joy on that day when they receive perfect bodies back from the Lord. That's the glorious future that we look forward to already now because of the fact that Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. He rose because God's justice was fully satisfied in him. He rose so he could send us his spirit to stir up new life in us already now. And because he rose, we may rest confident that we too will one day rise. And we can look forward to that glorious harvest of which Christ is the first fruits. Amen. Let us now 